1: Welcome back to New Books in American Studies. I'm the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. My conversation today is with Russell Rickford, Assistant Professor of History at Cornell University. His book, We Are an African People, Independent Education, Black Power, and the Radical Imagination, published by Oxford University Press, is the topic of this show. Rickford offers an intellectual history of the pan-African nationalist schools that emerged in the late 1960s from dissatisfaction with urban school desegregation and its failure to provide an equal education and foster racial pride. Influenced by third world theories and African anti-colonial campaigns, these black institutions promoted self-determination and black political sovereignty. Beginning with the campaigns for community control of schools, Divisions of black universities, Rickford identifies the key ideological strengths and weaknesses that ultimately resulted in the failure to build strong independent institutions necessary for cultural renewal. The Afrocentric ideas and schools that survived were congruent with neoliberal ideology that elided the social economic conditions of African Americans. Here is my conversation with Russell Rickford. Now, let me introduce you to the author, Russell Rickford. Russell, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your thoughts with our audience. But before we get into the book, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you came to write We Are an African People.
0: Okay. Let's see. My background. I uh, I did my undergrad at, uh, at Howard in Washington, D.C., um, and then for uh, grad school, I was at Columbia. I did a... Master's in African American Studies, and then I went on to the history PhD at uh, at Columbia. Um, so I've had a, a, a background in uh, in Black Studies, trained in uh, in history, and uh, have been focusing on um, African American political culture uh, after World War II, uh, social movements, uh, Black transnationalism, and and the Black radical tradition. So. Um, This book, We Are an African People, um, all of those uh, interests and fields sort of converge uh, in this book.
1: Well, you you paint a very sympathetic portrait of the people in your book, and there's a great deal to admire about them, their tenacity, their willingness to take amazing risks to do, you know, go do things, new things. But the story ends up being a tragedy, and that's what makes your book so poignant, I think is mm-hmm. the potential was so huge uh, mm-hmm. what could be done, but what happened. So we're going to go through the story, and I want to start with talking about, for you to talk to us a little bit about the failure of desegregation of the schools and how it failed African Americans, because this independent uh, black institutions came out of this failure of desegregation to actually deliver on its promises. Can you talk a little bit about that and what were, uh, what what happened?
0: Sure. Well, that's a, that's a, that's a big question. It's obviously a question that a lot of scholars and a lot of, uh, activists and other folks have spent a lot of time thinking about and talking about and, and, and writing about. I would only say for the purposes of my story that many, probably most of the, uh, intellectuals and educators Uh, artists and organizers who, um, by the late 60s and early 1970s, were focusing on building uh, independent black institutions and particularly uh, independent black schools and pan-Africanists and black national schools. Most of those folks came out of earlier struggles, especially struggles around desegregation. I think it's useful uh, to make a distinction between um, a struggle for integration or integrationist Uh, struggle uh, on one hand and a struggle for desegregation, right? Because uh, one of the points that I make early in the book is that, um, you know, in in the 1960s, you had um, highly mobilized black communities um, that were pushing for full citizenship, pushing for dignity, but also pushing for, uh, for power. And the, the the struggle to gain access to uh, equal education, educational opportunity, dignified education was a big part of that. But quite often the push wasn't for integration per se. That is to say, it wasn't for an opportunity for black kids to sit next to, you know, white kids in a classroom. The push really was for decent education, as you know, lots of scholars have, have pointed this uh, this out. And it's an important distinction because what that means is what that there wasn't necessarily a political or an ideological commitment to integration per se desegregation the removal of these structural barriers to a decent education was widely seen in african-american communities as a major uh, goal but also as part of the struggle for desegregation more and more activists organizers parents even students started to encounter some of the contradictions of the, uh, the, the arguments, for example, that were made uh, on behalf of, of integration. So, for example, the premise that a, a black school, a school that was predominantly or even entirely black, a public school, was necessarily inferior because of its blackness, right, um, which was sort of inherent or even explicit in, in a number of the desegregation struggles, became deeply uh, offensive uh, to many um, African Americans. And furthermore, as you suggest, there also were the and probably more importantly, there were the practical failures of desegregation, particularly in the urban areas that I focus on that were really uh, affected by massive white flight, by a departure from uh, from urban areas, um, and also to some extent from a departure from public education itself as as these central cities, changed demographically and became uh, blacker and browner, as it were, in the post-war years. And out of those frustrations, um, out of those failures, I think different political movements emerged. I would hasten to add, though, that I think it's a real mistake to see the movement for independent black institutions or other aspects of the black power movement simply as resulting from frustration alienation or disillusionment, for example, with the civil rights movement or with integrationism. One of the things I really try and stress in this book is that black power emerges from a tremendous optimism uh, in many ways, and not simply uh, frustration with the limitations of, uh, of racial reform, but a tremendous uh, hope and a tremendous sense of optimism that, that black pride, that an emphasis on black uh, political and cultural self-determination Um, that a rejuvenated uh, interest in in African culture and heritage, for example, can help to complete the task of winning African-American freedom that the civil rights revolution of the 1950s and 1960s had had begun. But by the late 1970s and certainly into the early – by the late 60s and into the early 70s, it was very clear to many activists and organizers – that new political directions, uh, new movements were were needed.
1: Now, one of the things that comes out of this uh, failure of desegregation and the battle over integration and desegregation, all the and people standing in different places in this, was this idea of community control initiatives mm-hmm. of controlling the public schools in the in the neighborhood.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: What did that look like, and what where, what did that ideology come from? And what were the features of this community control schools?
0: So the community control uh, movement, I think it's a good way of getting at these questions of ideological or or pragmatic commitment to desegregation. Community control was a uh, a grassroots demand. It was a widespread demand in uh, many urban areas, larger cities, even smaller or or medium-sized cities across the country. I mean, really, the epicenter of it was New York, particularly Harlem, and even more importantly, uh, central Brooklyn and the Bedsty um, or Ocean Hill Brownsville uh, area of Brooklyn, um, and in these uh, communities, uh, communities in which there had been long standing uh, and very aggressively fought battles for uh, for desegregation, many black and brown folks, uh, black people, Puerto Rican folks, et cetera came to the conclusion that the only way they could get a decent education for their children was actually to control uh, the schools, to uh, control all aspects of the delivery and the fashioning of of education. And and so this became one of the most powerful movements, perhaps the most powerful movement in educational reform uh, over the course of the, the 1960s. This is a movement that I chronicle in the early chapters of my book because Again, the um, the struggle for independent black institutions and Pan Africanist schools was another outgrowth of the um, community control struggle, and in community control again, you had a a, a range of ideologies. You had folks who ultimately were seeking um, integration, uh, and then you had a great many people uh, who were taking a much more uh, practical or pragmatic approach, uh, and then of course you had uh, committed. Um, uh, black nationalists and pan-Africanists who saw an opportunity to take control of the schools in order to nurture um, a real commitment to black pride, black heritage, etc. But even these categories of black nationalists, integrationists, in many ways, um, are porous and are not at all uh, mutually uh, exclusive. So I think that getting out of those, those sort of um categories those rigid categories is a good way to to understand the complexity of African American educational politics
1: now these uh community control initiatives failed largely because of resistance from teachers' unions school boards. what was the nature of that resistance
0: well I mean so uh, the community control struggles came up against bureaucracy um, I mean one of the uh, you know, for example, in New York where you had a massive and you had and have a, a massive um, uh, public school district um, with a really, really entrenched uh, bureaucracy, part of that bureaucracy was the uh, was the teacher's union, you know, which um, had arisen, uh, you know, ironically as a result really of a labor struggle um, earlier in the, uh, you know, 1960s um, in which you had – teachers struggling uh, to gain some uh, basic access to collective bargaining. But as a result of that, you had a a teaching force that was overwhelmingly uh, white. Um, And when you had um, uh, this struggle uh, by parents uh, and by community members in these, um, you know, uh, black and uh, Latino communities uh, to gain access to the schools, that put the activists, the community activists, uh, in direct confrontation with the, uh, in many cases with the interests of, um, overwhelmingly white, uh, professionals, the, uh, the teachers union. Um, and, and so, um, that became a very combustible, uh, you know, confrontation, uh, in many cities, in, and not just in New York, but in Chicago, uh, and, and other places, um, uh, in in some cases you had uh, you know folks from both sides um, who were willing to um, really sit down to think creatively about um, how to uh, you know educate children that had long been uh, neglected and uh, and marginalized but there was also a great deal of bitterness um, on both sides that came out of these episodes so unfortunately for example in places like New York you know memories of um, Ocean Hill-Brownsville and other struggles around community control really became uh, a moment of deep racial division, and those uh, divisions um, unfortunately have lingered uh, for many years.
1: Now, the there was a tension that was that was happening here was because of the development of Black Studies and what would be the nature of an education to Black children in terms of uh, the books were very the history books were very white. And is it a matter? Do we look at tokenism and uh, the black contribution in American history? What were the pedagogical differences between, you know, how you teach black children and what you teach them? This was part of the whole mix of argumentation and and, and a lot of uh, ill will. Sure. So, can you talk a little bit about what, how black studies, the emergence of black studies, was affecting? this particular battle for community control and what was going to be taught in these schools
0: sure well as many fantastic scholars um have um have argued you know black studies uh, there's been such a uh, an amazing explosion of of great uh books on the topic of uh of black studies and i won't mention any of them because i know if i mention two or three i'll i'll miss another two or three that are equally important and fantastic but um those scholars clearly have established how important um, the Black Studies movement was and just how profoundly it changed the course of education, um, not just higher education, but education in general um, in the United States and beyond during this um, uh, period. Uh, you know, those um, struggles over uh, over Black studies over making the curriculum more inclusive, acknowledging the uh, history, um, of uh, peoples, non-white peoples, non-western peoples, not just uh, African Americans, for example, but indigenous um, uh, Americans, et cetera. Um, those didn't those battles didn't uh, just unfold at the college level, um, but they really happened at the primary school and secondary school level um, as well. I mean these are these were really, really contentious uh, battles, you know, for example, in New York secondary schools, high schools. Um, There were a number of pedagogical and philosophical debates that were unfolding within those movements. One of the questions was, you know, what exactly are you educating, you know, black and brown children for? Are we educating them in order to um, uh, become, you know, fully functioning members of the existing society? Are we educating, um, uh, you know, black and brown children um, in order to uh, politicize them, in order to... Uh, so that they may go go ahead and help to build a, a a new society, you know what is the nature of the black history? I mean, everybody agrees, and you know, all liberals and progressives agree that we needed more black history. Uh, but to what end i guess is 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 the central question you know you had black um, you had activists who were emphasizing black separatism. you had activists who took more of an integrationist approach, um, et cetera. They were also struggling both within public schools. Um, and in independent black institutions to pursue uh, these same goals um, and in fact as as we entered the 1970s, um, a number of black studies advocates grew somewhat disillusioned with the um, the outcome of those struggles for black studies because uh, while on one hand you 'd had an explosion of Um, black studies programs and departments, many institutions of higher learning all across the country, in many ways, um, uh, those programs uh, weren't fully pursuing the activist goals, the internationalist agenda, the pan-Africanist agenda, the community-based grassroots agenda that many um, activists and intellectuals originally had, uh, had envisioned. So independent black institutions, again, became... Uh, the emphasis on independent black institutions became a way that um, advocates of black studies uh, could argue for a more autonomous um, political and pedagogical uh, program and approach.
1: Some of the struggles were over uh, what what are black values? Mm -hmm. What is a black style of teaching and learning? Mm -hmm. It wasn't just about inclusion, but all kinds of other things that most people don't think about. And what was interesting about your book is I knew about black studies, of course, at the college level. I didn't realize it had to reach down so far,
0: mm-hmm. uh, so early.
1: I knew it happened yeah. later, but I didn't realize it was there so uh, so early. Now, the, the history of movement schools, you spent your third chapter talking about uh, some of the longer history of movement schools, including, you know, the role of the black church, Marcus Garvey, in the freedom schools that preceded these independent black schools. Can you talk a little bit about it? Um, and what were the changes within the civil rights movement and SNCC and the rise of black power that sort of brought these black national schools back?
0: Sure. Well, so the, you know, black black nationalism, uh, Pan-African and pan-Africanism, are obviously very old political traditions in African-American life. Um, uh, they go back to the 18th and 19th centuries, obviously. Um, In the 20th century, one of the most uh, important and powerful uh, black nationalist and pan-Africanist movements of the early 20th century is the Garvey movement, uh, Marcus Garvey and the Universal Negro Improvement Association. And of course, um, a centerpiece of the UNIA's program, of Garvey's program, uh, was the schools, um, uh, independent schools. And so I spend some time um, discussing uh, the Garvey schools as a kind of precursor uh, to the black nationalists and pan-Africanist institutions of the 60s and uh, 70s. You also had, um, uh, in really in the aftermath of the, uh, the high point of the Garvey era, the 20s and 30s, um, you had the Nation of Islam uh, schools, the Universities of Islam, that proliferated in uh, a number of uh, urban areas uh, across the United States. Uh, Those also served as key models uh, in many ways for the Pan-Africanist independent schools that I focused on. Um, And those schools continue to exist um, uh, to this day, by the way. In the 1960s, so there was, you know, earlier waves of of black nationalism and pan-Africanist activity and institution building. In the 1960s, one of the um, most uh, powerful uh, models in terms of um, alternative education um, were the freedom schools, right, uh, produced by the civil rights movement, particularly the freedom schools in places like uh, Mississippi um, during Freedom Summer Uh, in 1964. Um, And the freedom schools were, uh, basically, they were grassroots institutions, they were outside of um, the regular school system, and they were specifically designed by activists, by, for example, members of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and other organizations, uh, to politicize uh, children. Um, and uh, on one hand to recruit for, for the movement for the civil rights movement, but also to introduce broader ideas um, that uh, were almost never covered in, in the segregated schools, um, white or black, uh, qu- larger questions of citizenship, um, uh, questions of black history, uh, black internationalism, uh, etc. Many of the organizers and the teachers, in the freedom schools of the earlier sixties and mid sixties ended up being key organizers of Pan-Africanist and Pan-African nationalist institutions in the late sixties and early 1970s. So this is yet another way that we see a kind of continuity between, you know, what we might think of as a civil rights era and the black power uh, era. Right. So, you know, I think my book is one of many, um, Uh, books that uh, see civil rights and and black power as deeply uh, interconnected, right? And I really see uh, black power as a process of maturation, uh, political and intellectual maturation, rather than, you know, sort of uh, sharp departure from or decline from a heroic civil rights movement.
1: Now, these independent black schools were... They were in storefronts, homes, basements. Where what? And they were. Um, the funding was almost non-existent. They, whatever they could raise from their own communities, and you have a couple of people that are really interested in your book. And one was the the East Palo Alto uh, Nairobi School that was started by Gertrude Wilkes. It was a very interesting story. Can you talk about her a little bit?
0: Sure. Well, uh, Ms. Wilkes, uh, Gertrude Wilkes was. She was a fascinating she is a fascinating uh figure. She's still living uh in in, in East Palo Alto. She's um she's gotta be well into her eighties. She might well well into her late eighties uh at this point. But Gertrude Wilkes um was one of the one of the most important leaders in terms of uh independent black institutions on the West Coast. Uh, so she was the founder of the Nairobi Day School and High School. Um, uh, which was really a, it was a, uh, private educational complex, black educational complex in East Palo Alto, which was a small black, um, suburb in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, and she was really a pioneer. I mean, many of the schools that I focus on in the book, uh, uh for example, East Coast schools like the African Free School in Newark, New Jersey, or Hurusasa Shule, uh, in, in Brooklyn, New York. Those uh, uh, arose uh, by the late 1960s. African Free School was very early, um, but Nairobi Day School actually preceded almost almost all of them. Um, and Gertrude Wilkes, like many of the the activists who I uh, chronicle, began as a staunch advocate of uh, of integration, and frustrated um, by the limitations uh, of integration, but also increasingly aware. Of the possibilities of black nationalism and self-determination, developed a kind of dual strategy. Where on one hand she was struggling for decent education in the public schools of East Palo Alto, and on the other hand she was also aggressively pursuing building uh, her own uh, school system that would emphasize, um, you know, black self-determination, pan-Africanism, etc. So Gertrude Wilkes was a key. Um model in the Nairobi school system was a was a key model for a lot of other uh, schools
1: what what were these schools like? What was that school particularly like in terms of the teaching methods, the discipline, the content of the curriculum? Do you have any uh, insight into that?
0: Well, they really um, they really vary. I mean, so you know this is a moment of tremendous educational reform more broadly. Um, this is also the moment of the counterculture. This is the moment of uh, free schools. Um, this is the moment of the de-schooling movement. So this is um, a time in which there are lots of critiques of the sort of traditional um, stand and deliver, you know, teaching style in the Little Red uh, Schoolhouse. Um, some of the schools that I chronicle really drew upon those uh, alternative ideas and those educational reforms in terms of pedagogy, in terms of the question of discipline, um, in terms of every aspect of the educational experience. Many of the schools were more traditional or were more conservative um, and sort of rejected the ideas of the free school movement as basically the domain of of white uh, middle class uh, liberals. So it really did um uh very uh, and furthermore, you know the thing about my book is that my book really is an intellectual history, so it really was looking at these schools as a uh, way of understanding ideological evolution the 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 change of political ideas um over time, right because I was fascinated by the whole idea of institution building, the idea that Black folks could build parallel structures, you know, what they thought of as sort of indigenous structures in, uh, within inner cities, um, that could serve as, you know, almost the provisional infrastructure for a new society, a new nation, right? So the, the watchword at this time was, was not integration, it was national liberation, right? Black folks, um, uh, were part of a national liberation movement. Um, so I don't spend too much time talking about, you know, what I call the inner life of the schools in terms of governance, in terms of sort of specific pedagogy. I do spend some time, but mostly I'm interested in the formation of the, of the schools um, and understanding the, their attempt to translate these ideologies, pan-Africanism, black self-determination, um, to practice those ideologies, to translate them into action.
1: Now we've, uh, we've mentioned Pan-Africanism many times already. And so this was not just about African-Americans in the United States. Pan-African nationalism was a vision about people of African origins or uh, heritage uh, uniting across the globe, regardless of where they were. Can you talk a little bit about the ideology of Pan-Africanism and how... What, parts of it that the african-americans pick up
0: sure Well, this this moment of course is also um a time in which you've had for several years by the late sixties and seventies you've had the african liberation movement um beginning in the uh, late fifties and 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 throughout the sixties um you see um you know african independence movements liberation struggles um becoming victorious and having a a tremendous uh political and cultural influence on um black people not just in the united states uh but throughout the west and throughout the uh diaspora Uh, so that was a backdrop of the civil rights and black power movements in the united states the question of african liberation the question of caribbean uh liberation and the question of third world liberation or third worldism as i like to call it uh more broadly that had a a a tremendous impact in terms of how um, organizers, um, intellectuals, and activists were uh, thinking about the process of education and thinking about the possibilities of education. So for example many of the schools that I uh, look at including uh, schools like the Center for Black Education uh, in Washington DC or Malcolm X Liberation University uh, in North Carolina, ultimately Greensboro, North Carolina, were very interested in preparing students, preparing young people, um, not just for life within the United States, certainly not for life within corporate America, but actually preparing them, um, giving them the, not just the ideological preparation, but the technical skills that they would need in theory. To uh, go to parts of the "quote unquote" black world, so go to you know young Caribbean nations, emerging African countries, um, and help to participate directly in the nation building process. So participate in building infrastructure, um, you know, working in hospitals, etc. So that was very much part of the Pan Africanist um, thrust. This idea that um, African American struggle was was part of a much larger struggle. Uh, for black self determination, um, all around the, all around the world. So, you know, this book is really a book about internationalism. It's, it's a book about transcending more parochial ideas about education, uh, about black politics, um, and ultimately it's about movement because many of these figures went abroad. You know, for example, the 6 Pan African Congress in Tanzania and East Africa, um, in 1974 was a major uh, meeting point and turning point for many of the uh, African-American organizers and activists who built these and ran these uh, independent schools. So really the book is about a movement of ideas and a movement of uh, of bodies. So what was interesting
1: was when they went to Africa, to this pan-African Congress, what they found was not what they thought they were going to find. They had an idea what they thought... Africa you know Africa's future was going to be and they came back some of them pretty disillusioned about those prospects over there
0: sure sure so you know one of the um, central tensions in the book I think is what you might call a a, a rather romantic or even uh, utopian in some ways you um, uh, black consciousness that tended to erase some of the differences between uh, cultural differences, political differences, differences in terms of history uh, between African-American communities um, and black governments and societies um, on the continent of Africa and the Caribbean and, uh, and elsewhere. Uh, I, you know, I'm being careful as I say this because, you know, it's easy to uh, dismiss movements as uh, utopian in a, uh, in a derogatory sense. Um, one of the things I try and celebrate uh, in the book is um, the, the breadth and the vibrancy of the radical, you know, as we say, the radical imagination um, that was part of this pan-Africanist uh, project. By the same token, uh, you know, a lot of folks realize once they were able to venture out into the world, once they were able to travel on the continent of, of Africa, once, once they were able to see uh, post-colonial societies and interact in some ways at, at many high levels, uh, speaking of the six-pan African Congress, interact at very high levels um, with uh, government officials that uh, there were profound differences uh, between um, uh, African Americans, the situation and experiences of African American, and those of uh, other African or African descended people uh, around the world. Now, I think at best, um, those often jarring experiences could read to, could lead to further political maturation and political development and evolution. I think that was the best case scenario. That's not always what we saw, of course. In many cases, it could lead also to a sort of withdrawal from the international sphere and a return to more parochial um, uh, outlooks. But I think that the book is not, It's not. I mean, you said early in the interview um, or the discussion you, you used the word tragedy, and I think that certainly there are tragic aspects. Um, but I see the book as hopeful because it. it it tries to highlight the process of, of political growth, right? It really does not, it tries to avoid seeing either these institutions or uh, the organizers who ran them as static, right? So to really be attentive to um, political change, to political transformation. And one of the transformations was that I saw and I tried to chronicle was a shift from a, a kind of narrow what i call racial pan-africanism to a much broader what i call left pan-africanism which was a pan-africanism that was rooted in anti-imperialism a pan-africanism that didn't um, uh... just support post-colonial governments because they were black um, but tried to think about what liberation meant uh... for those societies for working people in those societies and understood some of the problems, for example, of neocolonialism, right? Um, So I see this as a much more promising iteration of of Pan-Africanism at the time.
1: Yeah, because you do talk about the the, uh, early schools, uh, nationalist schools in the United States, uh, were were rather conservative in their outlook and what they were trying to, and they were very much about race, but uh, it was very sort of conservative, and even conservative in their... In their methods of teaching and what they were teaching. And, uh, I'm gonna go back to talk about, uh, out of this came this idea of the black university. And for you to talk a little bit about what is the difference with the, between a black university as the concept of a black university and the traditional African American colleges that we know, like Howard uh, University, for instance, or, you know, traditional black colleges. What sure. was it, And how did this movement of the black university influence or affect these, you know, Negro colleges that had been along around for a long time? They sure. how did they shape them and change them?
0: Sure. Um, so my book looks at the uh, the concept of the the black university. There's been some great scholarship to come out recently on this topic. Um, Martha Biondi's uh, book on the black studies movement. Um, also looks closely at the concept of the the black university. And I think the black university concept, which arose by the late 1960s, was um, uh, one of the most powerful ideals of the moment. Certainly in terms of the question of organizing or reorganizing education and the question of institution building. And of course, you know, what was meant by quote unquote black university at the time was not simply. HBCUs, right? Historically Black Colleges and Universities. You know, whether we're talking about Fisk or whether we're talking about Lincoln or whether we're talking about, you know, the Atlanta schools, Howard University in Washington D.C. In many ways, um, the Black university concept was a critique of, of many of those institutions, particularly elite um, schools like uh, like Howard. Um, and in fact, you know, you talk about the Black Studies uh, revolt. Um, Well, there was a major rebellion uh, on the campus of Howard University um, around the question of of black studies and around the question of making the institution more relevant uh, to black people, uh, to black folks in Washington, D.C., northwest Washington, D.C., where Howard is is situated, Um, but making HBCUs more relevant to to the black struggle uh, and to black people in the United States and around the world. Um so actually uh that struggle uh, at Howard University um was very generative in terms of um helping to to nurture and give rise to um independent black uh, uh institutions so the black university concept in short was um the idea that um you could build an institution of higher learning that was not that didn't exist in an ivory tower that was not part of the white power structure, but that could serve in very profound and intimate ways all the social needs of uh, rank and file black folks, working class and and poor black people, particularly in in urban areas, right? So it was the quest. I mean, really, a very theoretical quest in many ways um, to build those kind of institutions, but not just a theoretical quest, of course. Um, because it actually produced, uh, you know, brick-and-mortar um, ex- experiments.
1: Well, you've got the Malcolm X Liberation University, which you talk about with uh, Howard Fuller, who mm-hmm. started that. And that the whole idea, of course, was that universities couldn't just be academic centers, that they had to be engaged with the neighborhoods and this is the, the community around them. Right. And uh, talk a little bit about Howard Fuller, because I thought he was a very interesting person.
0: Yeah, yeah, he's a fascinating, a fascinating guy. Um, so his name uh, at this time was Owusu Sadaki. He took the name Owusu Sadaki. Hardful was one of the most uh, um, one of the most powerful intellectuals of the movement, one of the most influential, um, not just of the Black Independent School Movement, but but really of the Black Liberation Movement at this time. And he was one of the key figures. In the founding of uh, African Liberation Day, which was one of the most um, important manifestations of um, Pan Africanist politics in this in this period, um, Ussu Sadaki was uh, the founder of Malcolm X Liberation University, um, originally in Durham uh, and then ultimately in Greensboro, uh, North Carolina. Uh, Malcolm X Liberation University (MXLU) was probably the most Uh, important, one of the most important uh, independent black post-secondary institutions uh, of the day. Um, uh, And it um, accepted uh, black students uh, from all over the place, Uh, not just the United States. It even had uh, international um, students. Many of them were folks who had gone to predominantly white institutions of higher learning some that had gone to HBCUs uh, and had been kicked out, for example, for political activities. So they were politicized, radicalized students who were looking to um, participate in a truly unique experiment in, in black self determination and in pan Africanist education. So those kind of figures flocked to uh, MXLU in, uh, uh, in North Carolina. Ousu Sadaki. Then went on to be, as I mentioned, the key figure in the founding of African Liberation Day celebrations, um, which were really at their height in 1972 or 1973. And this was, you know, again before I, I, I emphasize the question of political maturation. So you had, by the late 1960s, Pan Africanism probably one of the most powerful uh, political tendencies within Black Power, and seen as sort of the inevitable. Um, culmination of the black power concept. But by the early 1970s, figures like Usu Sadaki, Howard Fuller, were uh, really instrumental in taking pan-Africanism to the next level. So rather than um, uh, going beyond a kind of a romantic uh, cultural nationalism, going beyond even a racial essentialism that saw um, uh, you know, racial, kind of racial ties, mystical, you know, racialism as, as the most important connections between black folks in the United States and black folks in the diaspora and on the continent. going beyond that and thinking very concretely about how the oppression of African-Americans economically, politically, culturally is linked to the ongoing oppression um, of black people, working people around the world and African Liberation Day which raised funds and support for ongoing uh, liberation struggles on the African continent, particularly southern Africa and the Portuguese colonies, was the sort of outcome of that shift to a far more, what I would uh, define as a far more uh, politically promising version of pan-Africanism.
1: Now, the institutions, the black institutions, these independent schools, uh, they faced several challenges that really sort of became their decline. One was the disillusionment with pan-Africanism, the feud between the right-leaning nationalist and black Marxist, Mm -hmm. uh, repression from uh, the federal investigations, Mm -hmm. uh, and funding challenges, you know, being cut off from funding when uh, I think at one point the Episcopal Church was giving money to one of these institutions, and then they, you know, Took it away,
0: um,
1: and there was there was also the ideological erosion into self-help <laughs> <laughs> in the age of in the age of Reagan, and yeah. and and so you still have these African-centric schools, but now it's it's more bourgeois sort of nationalism, uh, much more conservative, much more it has in line with white conservatives who also want control over the education of their children.
0: Sure. Sure. So, right. So, which is one of the um, perhaps less upbeat, uh, you know, aspects uh, towards the end of the book, I'm tracing um, what I see is the shift from from a deeply politically engaged Pan-Africanism, from Pan-Africanism whose centerpiece was, for example, African Liberation Day um, and raising funds for, um, you know, ongoing uh, support of liberation movements. That is to say, a deeply politically engaged and internationalist pan-Africanism, and a pan-Africanism that was tied um, not just to uh, black nations or black governments, but also was deeply engaged with the third world. I um, was thinking about questions of third world, uh, you know, Marxism in places like Cuba, for example, uh, or Vietnam, I traced the decline of that kind of Pan Africanism and the, the rise of something that was in some ways similar in terms of its emphasis on black self determination, but in a much more politically limited and limiting sense. Um, and I call that movement uh, Afrocentrism. Now, Afrocentrism, um, I argue, took a much more uh, bourgeois approach. It took an approach that was uh, much more parochial. It wasn't uh, engaged uh, to the same extent with uh, liberation movements around the world. Didn't have that kind of a uh, incisive internationalist um, outlook, and that was much more um, conciliatory towards capitalism and towards other conservative forces that were coming to the you know to the fore in the uh, 1970s and 1980s. So, ironically, um, Afrocentrism became very successful in many ways by the late 20th century. Uh, there were, for example, many many Afrocentric schools, uh, both within and outside of public education systems, in many major cities. But uh, I argue that these schools, by and large, I mean there there were some there were some some sort of counter examples. Um, That I cite, but by and large, these schools weren't committed to the kind of open-ended, radical political project that many of the independent Black institutions at the height of the late 1960s, 1970s were.
1: This is why this is why I said that your story was a a tragedy tragedy. Because (laughs) because there was so much momentum and possibilities and just an imagination that was just. Some people call it maybe utopian, but I, I agree with you. Utopianism can be used as a way to say something is, you know, uh, not very smart or, or not realistic or pragmatic. Sure. But, but I think it was uh, pretty powerful, and it seemed like it, all these reversals, all these not only internal conflicts but also external pressures. Sure. It just it, it caved in. It was it, and it ended up with what you end up in the end. So that's why I think it's, that's the tragedy of it, that there was the sure. potential was tremendous.
0: Sure. Well, I, you know, um, well, this is a question, this is a philosophical question in terms of how we, how we read and, and I guess how we write history uh, and for what purpose to what end, right? Um, I think it's really important to study all of those factors that you mentioned, the internal collapse, um, the external pressures to understand uh, the repression, to understand COINTELPRO, to understand the uh, internal feuds, you know, what was called the two-line struggle, as you mentioned, the, the uh, long-running and deeply destructive conflict between black Marxists on one hand um, and more conservative black nationalists uh, on the other. Um, but again, I I tried to highlight, I think throughout the book and even towards the end, uh, where there's a lot of bad news, right, about some of the conservatism of, of uh, Afrocentrism. I tried to highlight the promise of these ideas and the fact that they they never really died, right? They they um, they're always there. Quite often, they they seem dormant, but the ideas of black self determination, um, black internationalism, some of the anti capitalist uh, ideas um some of the, the, the third worldism. Um uh they they these movements leave behind embers that can that can reignite, you know, is, is is how I like to put it. Um and I see in some ways that we see, you know, movements like Black Lives Matter um that include some elements of this question of independent institutions. We've seen, you know, not just in Black Lives Matter, but uh, more broadly across the country, we've seen a resurgence of emphasis on independent institutions, uh, building you know uh, urban gardens, um, you know alternative economies, alternative institutions. Um, so I think that these ideas, uh, you know, they, they 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 keep their currency, um, and even though the immediate movements may be defeated or may collapse there's tremendous uh, promise for um, alternative approaches and for movement building uh, in the future. And so I I hope that this book, um, like I hope all my scholarship is um, serves as, as a model, sometimes a cautionary (laughs) model, uh, but also helps to inspire future struggles.
1: No, I think they're very inspiring. The stories are very inspiring about what it is that, that these people were these ideas, and could we use these ideas again? Okay, mm-hmm. could we use these ideas to deal some, with some of the incredible problems that we're ha- we're having right now? This idea of independent institutions that are close to the people, instead right. sort of far away in bureaucratic systems.
0: Sure. Uh, yeah. So yeah. I'm
1: I'm I get you there. Um, <laughs> so anyway, that you have been uh, you've given me a lot of your time. So I just want to ask you one more question. Sure. Um, what are you working on now?
0: <laughs> well you know so I'm working on a book about Guyana um, Guyana uh, is a country in South America um, it's actually my native land I was born in Guyana in the 70's uh, and grew up, you know my family moved to to the US I grew up in Northern California um, beginning in the 1980's uh, but I I was drawn to Guyana for a number of reasons. So this moment in the 1970s, I'm fascinated by. And during this time, Guyana became, for some African-American leftists, progressives, and pan-Africanists, became a very important site politically and culturally, um, a site of tremendous promise. Um, And there was even a small trickle of... Uh, migration to uh, to Guyana. It's it's in South America. It's a former British colony, but it's very much part of the part of the you know culturally it's part of the and politically part of the uh, Caribbean. Uh, so I'm doing an, uh, a book about the sort of place of Guyana in the radical African American imagination of the 1970s, and it's looking um, at you know folks who actually went to Guyana so black african american expatriation in, in in Guyana um but more broadly i'm thinking about the idea of how Guyana was being imagined how it was being conceived as a political destination as a place that was providing sanctuary for example for um african american you know political uh prisoners um so this is you know a confrontation of questions of uh again of exile uh, of expatriation but also some of the ideas of nation-building and internationalism that that I touch upon in in this current book we are an asking people so I think it's a very it's a project that's that's linked in many intimate ways um, but it's also quite new because I'm sort of re- trying to refashion myself as a Caribbeanist So there's a huge stack of I've got about a hundred books stacked up in my office that I have to read I, and I gotta teach this semester too I don't know how I'm going to get it done, but I'm—I'm I'm going to, by the end of it, I will have uh, refashioned myself, as I say, as a, as a Caribbeanist. I'm looking forward to the project.
1: Okay. Uh, thank you, Russell.
0: Thank you so much, William. This has been fun.
1: And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books in American Studies. It would be a pleasure to hear from you. You can reach me through my website, www.lillianbarger.com. This is your host, Lillian Barger.